Everyone needs an estate plan. That's why FindLaw worked with lawyers from across the country and employed Thomson Reuters industry-leading form automation technology to create affordable, customizable, do-it-yourself estate planning documents. Forms available include a last will and testament, healthcare directive and living will, and financial power of attorney. You can purchase a form individually, or you can bundle all three for a 10% discount. Both individual and couples packages are available. FindLaw's estate planning forms are backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can update your finished estate plan for free for up to a year after purchase. There is no time like the present to start estate planning and get peace of mind, especially when you can do it from the comfort of home and at a fraction of the cost of going to an attorney. To get started, head to www.findlaw.com forms. Howdy, legal people. Welcome to Don't Judge Me, the show about law in real life. I'm Beta Himetha, joined today by my co-host, Joe Fabich. Hey, Joe. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. And we got Laura Tenney. Hello. So today we are talking again about some labor stuff, our second time this year, actually, because there's a lot of union and strike and labor law news coming up, uh, especially with the big Amazon news that's going on lately. So yeah, this is actually a a much more interesting topic than you might first think. Uh, There's actually a lot (laughs) of history behind unions. And there's a lot of strife and legal wrangling. And Vedahi, I know you have a little bit of background for us on the history of unions. I guess we get to go back into the Wayback Machine. It's been a minute since we got to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I want to be a woman of color in 1935, but that's where we're going. (laughs) Because in 1935, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA. Um, Also, fun fact, this is a.k.a. the Wagner Act, because that's the name of the senator who wrote it. And it was signed into law by FDR, no surprise. (laughs) But yeah, so the NLRA, this act, what does this act do? It guarantees important rights of private sector employees, which is important because it doesn't actually apply to a lot. It doesn't apply to a lot more people than you think. Um, So not only does it not apply to government workers, but also independent contractors, domestic workers, agricultural workers. I don't know. I don't know why Mm -hmm. that one seems random. Um, It doesn't apply to supervisors, but it applies to a lot of, you know, private sector employees generally. And for those who it does cover, it guarantees their rights to certain important things like to organize into trade unions, engage in collective bargaining and engage in collective action, e.g. strikes, which Laura, you're going to talk about later, right? Oh, yeah. I I don't think anybody should be surprised that I'm the one talking about people acting up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Very appropriate. Um, So this act, it was intended to address the inequality of bargaining power between employers and employees at the time. A big part of the act was banning what are called company unions, uh, which are unions that aren't really independent trade unions because they're so controlled by the company, the corporation itself, that it's not really 
fairly independent. And in fact, international labor law, which predates the United States National Labor Relations Act, um, bans these company unions too. And in fact, if you look at the ILO, which is the International Labor Organization, that dates back to the League of Nations, uh, created in the wake of the not-so-great war. This is a pattern y'all are going to see. Like, we have we have a big old war, and it disrupts economic stuff, and then people are like, hey, our work lives kind of suck, and governments respond with legislation. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's all to say company unions equals bad to democracies. And actually, they're known as yellow unions, literally just because yellow isn't red, I think, and red is socialist. Um, the, the act, the law required union officers to sign non-communist affidavits with the government. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, this is all in the wake of the Red Scare. So this sure. is not, you know. So also not surprisingly, you'll still see company unions to this day in many countries with authoritarian governments. And that is as political as I will get <laughs> for this episode. Um, Nonpartisan podcast. <laughs> Nonpartisan <laughs> podcast. And then lastly, the act, the NLRA, also allows states to enact their own right-to-work laws banning union shops, which are important, you know, in, in how they play out with a lot of cases to this day, this right-to-work right to laws. Importantly, also, the act established the bigger household name, the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. You'll see the NLRB in countless case names as the plaintiff, like everything, like NLRB versus corporate America. That's basically <laughs> NLRB versus everything. I, liked that I just liked the combination of corporate and America. <laughs> sort of. NLRB versus the man. There we um, go. I like that. <laughs> but the board was was really important in like giving the act teeth because it, I mean, it was important for all kinds of uh, for rulemaking, for enforcement. So it established all kinds of rules for collective bargaining and it set out what were officially unfair labor practices. So one example of that being that employers can't interfere with the formation or organization of unions. <coughs> Amazon. <coughs> <laughs> Coming for everybody today. I like it. Everybody. Uh, and um also, the board and NLRB prosecutes violations of labor law, of the laws that it establishes. It prosecutes those. And it oversees the process in which employees decide to be represented by a union or a former union. So if this sounds like the NLRB is kind of acting like both or all three of a judicial, legislative and executive branch, that's because it kind of is. Yeah. Because it's an, because it's an agency. Mm -hmm. And um, so many agencies get this sort of delegation from Congress to act more or less in all three of these capacities without technically violating separation of powers. But that's a whole different can of worms. We, we should do an episode of how agencies work at some point. We should do it yeah. when Andy is here um, because he would he oh would yes. have a heart attack and it would be entertaining to hear him rip on Congress. Yeah. And Joe, I know how much you love talking about administrative law. I, it is my favorite. I can't get enough. Well, so it should come as no surprise that the act and the board were strongly opposed by conservatives and Republicans. Um on the legal front, the act was challenged as being unconstitutional, um, but the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the act in the famous case of 
you guessed it, NLRB, NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel Company. Basically, in this case, the steel company fired workers that were trying to unionize, even though the act required that they have that right, uh, because the company was arguing that the act wasn't constitutional. And SCOTUS was just like, no, the act's good. You got to rehire these guys. And SCOTUS upheld it under Congress's Commerce Clause powers, which was a major expansion of those powers, to be fair. And it kind of, you know, fell into a pattern of, of, of upholding a lot of congressional action under the Commerce Clause in that time period. Fast forward to WW Dose, where, again, there were all kinds of changes going on in World War II. Uh, same look with the First World. There's all kinds of changes going on to the economy. Um, and FDR, still at play, he had set up the National War Labor Board, not to be confused with the other board that we talked about. He'd set up the National War Labor Board to keep things running and prevent work stoppages so that the war effort wasn't compromised. So unions had put off a lot of major demands for the sake of national unity in the Second World War. But then when it's coming to a close, over 10 million soldiers come home to occupy civilian jobs again. And inflation was, well, I would say it was nuts, but it was like 8%. So nothing (laughs) we're not used to seeing right now. Yeah, it's all kind of cyclical, isn't it? It got worse. It got up to 14% at some point. So, so it did get a lot worse than we have it today. But anyway, there was a lot going on and workers had been putting up with wartime hours and wartime wages mm-hmm. for a long time, biting their tongues. And when conditions didn't get better after the war, they kind of just all took to the streets. They were not having it. Like strikes everywhere. It's like Lauraville, <laughs> USA. Um <laughs> Strikes for everything. Strikes for better pay, better hours, firing, company policies, disciplinary rules, you name it. It was the largest and longest set of strikes in the country's history. And despite 5 million Americans being involved in these strikes, they were not popular with the majority of Americans. And so in the 1946 elections, all of this helped the Republicans win control of Congress. And they used their majority to pass the Taft-Hartley Act over the veto of President Truman, um, but with the support of a lot of Democrats. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the Taft-Hartley Act amended the 1935 National Labor Relations Act that we first talked about. And it did this by restricting the activities and the power of labor unions. It prohibited unions from engaging in certain unfair practices, including, but not limited to, um, jurisdictional strikes, which is not what it sounds like to lawyers. Um, (laughs) Jurisdictional strikes just means that union members, when, when union members protest certain kinds of work or tasks or assignments of duties, it has nothing to do with like legal jurisdiction. Um, it also prohibited wildcat strikes, which is not college basketball players <laughs> protesting. Or high school musical. Sorry. Oh I had my to. God. Come on, I'm sorry. Lord, I'm sorry. Look, okay. I, I, held, I held my tongue. I was about to protest when you called, you know, a bunch of strikes Lauraville, but then I realized if I did, it would prove your point. So oh my I'm just God. playing. You know? <laughs> so I, I, had to, I had to sneak one joke in. Now Zach Efron is forever ingrained into my brain, and that song will not. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So what wildcat strikes actually are just basically unofficial strikes. They're unsanctioned by the trade union. So they're just 
the employers striking out by themselves. Um, also prohibited solidarity or political strikes, like you know, like general strikes that have nothing to do with work. Um, prohibited monetary donations by unions to federal political campaigns and all kinds of things. It just really restricted a lot of what unions could do. So this act, you know, it did continue to generate opposition after Truman left office, after it was, you know, in, in the wake of it, but it does remain still in effect to this day. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up that so uh, so many of these changes happen after war, because it does seem like when sort of things, we go through hard times, and then when things start to look better, the workers start to start to say, hey, wait a second, I don't think I like the way this is going. And because we saw the same thing with the pandemic. Yeah. As last year, when things started to ease up a little bit in the in the COVID-19 pandemic, it seemed to alert a lot of workers to their value and unfair or unsafe working conditions. And they're sort of leveraging that value now. And so we're seeing a lot more strikes. Yeah. And it's like, you know, people will take one for the team in mm-hmm. difficult times for so long. But when those times sort of re- like return back to normal, they're like, wait a minute, why are we still being treated like it's wartime conditions or pandemic conditions or whatever? Although these days, people actually want to be treated like it was pandemic <laughs> conditions in terms of staying <laughs> at home, true. work from home, and uh, they kind of don't want to go that back to the way things are. I feel attacked, well, But it's a very different <laughs> class of employee there. It's not mm-hmm. the, the people who are work from home are not really the people who are striking in the pandemic. True. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Outstanding point. That actually kind of brings us to our current events portion mm. of the show, <laughs> which is the recent unionization of a warehouse in Staten Island. Uh, I don't think I need to go too much into the background about working conditions at Amazon warehouses. Mm. That's pretty widely reported. Uh, I think it's sufficient to say that it's long hours. A lot of times they don't get enough breaks, maybe not even bathroom breaks. Uh, there's huge turnover. They have a rate of like 150%. So they get wow. basically a brand new workforce uh, mm-hmm. every eight months. Yeah. But that being said, they hire like crazy at an unprecedented rate. So they're hiring people all the time. And they are still currently the second largest private employer in the U.S. So this does involve a lot of people. And this has been an ongoing issue for Amazon for quite some time. They have been worried about unionizing for a long time. Amazon has. Uh, I wrote last year about how they like to monitor their employees. Uh, they've been accused of even monitoring private Facebook groups of employees who they believe may be thinking about forming a union. You know, speaking of history, uh, Amazon has been alleged to hire Pinkerton operatives, which is the oh, famous man. agency. <laughs> Detective yeah, agency, they, right? they, they Yeah, they started during the Civil War, but now they're more known for this sort of corporate espionage thing and, and anti-unionizing efforts. Uh, so Amazon has been known to do that. And they also do very much fight for not having any of their workers be part of a union. Uh, They're very much anti-union. They expect high turnover at their warehouses. That's built into their business model. Uh, They tend to hire for manager positions and and their office workers from a a different demographic group. They tend to go for college-educated people for their manager positions at the warehouse. And so if you do get hired on at a warehouse in Amazon, it's very difficult to rise through the ranks, which is another complaint mm. that employees yeah. there have. 
Um, so it's been attempted a couple of times. Last year, the big news was out of Bessemer, Alabama. In that case, a large union, uh, the retail union actually, tried to get the employees in Bessemer to unionize, and they got as far as taking a vote, and it was defeated by a two-to-one margin, so it wasn't even very close. And at the end of that process, most union leaders figured Amazon was a bit of a lost cause. But fast forward to just this month, and at a warehouse called JFK 8 in Staten Island, a union movement that was not affiliated with any existing large union, it was done by it was organized by two former employees who were fired for staging a walkout, and they actually managed to get enough votes to unionize in a pretty narrow vote, but they they clearly won, and they were able to do it without any outside help. It was a... With very little money, too, mm-hmm. and with a pro bono lawyer. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So it, it was definitely a David and Goliath story here because Amazon is more than willing to throw tons of resources at these sorts of efforts. Um, You know, they spend $5 million just on consulting about these sorts of things a year, you know, whereas the union organizers were trying to fund themselves using GoFundMe and and doing that sort of thing. So it's definitely the not, it was unexpected in that uh, it's kind of not using the traditional method of unionizing. Uh, Usually it's an outside labor union goes targets a certain group of workers that they believe would benefit from a union. Uh, And in this case, it was not. It was completely independent. And that's a great point, Joe. I was wondering, do you know why maybe outside union, like already established unions have either not tried or tried and failed to unionize Amazon workers? Well, yeah, uh, they did try in Bessemer. That was part of the the program. That was an outside, yeah. And we weren't there, so we don't know the exact details of why the vote failed in Bessemer. But at least according to the two former workers who did manage to succeed in forming a union, uh, they were not connected enough to the workers who were actually in the warehouse. Um, They argued that they didn't do enough um, basically grassroots organizing. And Amazon is absolutely contesting this formation of a union. I think they're actually going to the NLRB themselves and they're they've got like 26 claims of why they believe the vote should be discarded. I think they claim things like there was intimidation and lies that that basically they're saying that the organizers lied to employees and said that bad things would happen if they didn't vote for the union, uh, which are pretty typical claims to make. So we'll see how that develops. Um, I don't think anybody is particularly surprised that Amazon is contesting this. Again, they they very much are stridently anti-union. So this one was a little bit narrower and we'll have to see how it goes. Yeah, so basically the same warehouse that you're talking about last year apparently also had a vote a month ago and it was very it was also rejected but very very narrowly yeah now there's still a lot left to do um, as you touched on a little bit it's not just forming the union there's also collective bargaining involved and we're not at that point yet clearly the union is asking for things that unions always ask for like better hours and higher pay and it also a lot of the 
impetus for forming the union started because of the pandemic. They were very worried about safety at the warehouse and uh, being in close contact. Yeah. And also there was more demand than before during the pandemic because everyone was ordering things. So there was just Mm -hmm. like a lot more pressure on the workers to be there. Yeah. And you can see why Amazon was so interested in getting workers to come in to the warehouse because this was a historic opportunity for them. Mm And they wanted to take advantage of it, and they don't want to have to deal with a union during what has to be kind of a golden age for them for corporate profits. Very ironically, (laughs) some of the unions started striking because Amazon, because people were showing up with COVID symptoms and Amazon wasn't requiring them or letting them go home. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that Amazon cited for firing some of these people were because it was belying the fact that they were protesting, but the, the, the reason that they cited was because they weren't social distancing. Well, and, and that's the thing is, in most cases, you can't fire someone for, for going on strike. Now, of course, in this case, mm-hmm. Amazon did do that. They The individual who organized, uh, his name is Chris Smalls, and one of his his good friends who also worked at Amazon at the time, Derek Palmer. As I referenced before, they staged a walkout over some of these conditions, including the pandemic conditions. This happened after a colleague of theirs came in to work with an outstanding COVID test still pending and displaying all sorts of symptoms. The test was positive and they got worried and staged a walkout. And shortly after, Amazon fired him. And even at the time, the New York Times uh, was able to get some text messages from people in HR at Amazon who were kind of like, hey, this yeah. isn't a good look for us. Because all they were asking for in the beginning was like a 24-hour period of like sort of like sanitation before they come back in. And Amazon was like, nope, we can't lose you for an hour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they, I mean, they Amazon tracks packages by the second. <laughs> yeah. They're just insanely focused on getting things out the door as quickly as possible. And a lot of that is very labor intensive. And so they do really push their employees. As anybody who comes and visits my neighborhood can tell you with those Amazon (laughs) trucks flying by, um, it always scares me. Just wait for the drones. Oh my gosh. There you go. So yeah, this was a little bit of a different process than what we've seen in the past with it being a very grassroots, a very organic movement started by people who were former employees Mm -hmm. and is... Maybe we'll see a repeat of this. Uh, Vady, as you mentioned, with them retaking a vote in Bessemer, uh, clearly people are still interested. Amazon employees are still interested in maybe forming a union. So we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, the grassroots stuff kind of reminds me of how we we traditionally see strikes as forming. Oh, is that for me? Am I being called on now? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Miss Temmie. (laughs) Yeah, since I've I've already been called out as the as I guess the rebel of the group, I was trying to (laughs) wait my turn to talk about strikes. As we've kind of alluded to in our earlier discussions, strikes are a very effective way for workers to make a statement. One of the strongest ways that workers can make their voices heard is by withholding their labor. And the National Labor Relations Act that Vedahi discussed earlier includes strikes in the concerted activities that are protected by law. So part of the NLRA says that employees shall have the right to engage in concerted activities for the purposes of collective bargaining or other mutual aid or protection. That's section seven. If you want to look it up, you probably don't. So I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't underestimate our listeners. 
<laughs> oh, I know. I'm trying not to make Joe fall asleep. Um, well, and then, and then the other important part of the NLRA is Section 13, which I'm going to paraphrase because it's way too long. But essentially, it says that nothing in this statute can be interpreted to interfere or diminish the right to a strike. So the strike is very much ingrained in all of this. And under the law, strikers typically fall into two categories. You've got economic strikers who are typically asking for higher wages, shorter hours, better working conditions. And then you have unfair labor practice strikers. And these are the people who are usually alleging that their employer has engaged in some kind of activity that violates labor law. The importance of that distinction is that it makes a difference in how it plays out when these people go on strike and whether or not they can get their jobs back after the strike is over. Whew, that was a lot of words. I gotta take a deep <laughs> breath. <laughs> I like said all of that without breathing. That was weird. It goes back to your musical theater belting. So. I know. Yeah, I can do it for a pretty long time. <laughs> after a while, I do run out of air. So economic strikers can retain their status as employees and cannot be be fired if they go on strike, as I mentioned earlier, but they can be replaced until the strike ends. And they are not necessarily entitled to reinstatement if mm. the replacement workers are bona fide permanent replacements. And I, I just have to I have to do this. I don't know about you guys, but when you read bona fide, does anybody else think of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where the little oh, kids absolutely. are like, he's a suitor. He's bona fide. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. I think of that every single time. So I'll be reading some sort of really serious legal thing. And I'm just sitting here thinking bona fide. <laughs> George Clooney pops into your head. Yeah. 100%. Okay. I'm glad it's not just me. Okay. Back to strikes. On the flip side, unfair labor practice strikers cannot be fired or permanently replaced if they go on strike. So when the strike ends, they have to be given their jobs back unless there's been some sort of serious misconduct on their part. And as we've kind of touched on as we've been talking about this, uh, there have been a lot of strikes lately. October 2021 was actually dubbed Striketober by a lot of news outlets. And we're also seeing something that experts are calling the Great Resignation, like I said, the pandemic has has revealed a lot of bad things when it comes to working conditions for a lot of people. For example, last fall, taxi drivers in New York City went on a hunger strike for debt relief because many of these taxi drivers are in debt from loans they took out to buy taxi medallions, which give drivers the exclusive right to pick up passengers and used to be worth over a million dollars. But the value of these medallions took a nosedive when we start introducing things like Uber and Lyft. Mm -hmm. sure. And eventually in November, city officials agreed to spend at least another $100 million to eliminate debt owed by these drivers. They had done some debt relief programs before that, but the hunger strike was the, the drivers saying, no, it's not enough. I, I guess the pandemic exacerbated it for, for those taxi drivers as well. Yeah, demand goes way down, Yeah, but they still have to be paying off these medallions. Yeah, absolutely. Meanwhile, food workers at Kellogg, Frito-Lay, and Nabisco walked off the job in late summer, early fall last year. And Smithfield Foods in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is pretty close to where I'm from, so I just wanted to shout that one out. <laughs> uh, they narrowly avoided a strike at a plant last year. The Kellogg strike lasted about three months. It ended in December when the union was able to ratify a new contract. And the, the Nabisco strike lasted about five weeks. That ended with a new contract as well. So it's, yeah, it's not just people in food service industry, which is a lot of what you hear about, um, who are often, God, they're paid so little sometimes that they're getting more on unemployment and it's not worth their time to go back to work. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 
It's all across different sectors. Yeah. One sort of more unusual example I wanted to bring up is graduate workers at Indiana University went on strike just this month with the hope that school administrators would recognize their union. And it's kind of a unique one because it's called a recognition strike. And these are not super common. It's essentially they're just they're asking for their employer to recognize that they have joined a union. They're calling themselves the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition, and they have joined on to an existing union, the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of of America, which is the same union that graduate workers at MIT have joined. And one of the things that they're fighting in that situation is the end of mandatory fees for graduate workers at the university. They argue that it's essentially a pay cut. Mm. You know, they get their stipends for working at the university, and then they have to turn around and give a chunk of that uh, money back to the school. Yeah. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. It, it's So it's an interesting one, but they're kind of facing an uphill battle because the state's employment laws are not stacked in favor of public sector employees. Plus, Indiana is a right-to-work state, which... Vedahi, you mentioned right to work earlier. That refers to state laws that prohibit union membership as a requirement for obtaining or keeping your job. And it also prevents unions from requiring non-members to pay agency fees in exchange for representation, which, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways on paper, it sounds good. There's a reason why 27 states have these laws on the books. And you can check the show notes for more information on right-to-work laws. But yeah, at at times it can cause problems for people who are trying to unionize. You bring up a good point too, in that we're flying over one of the most complex areas of law that there is. Um, (laughs) So I know our listeners out there are probably saying, you know, what about this? What about that? Uh, There's just so much to cover and a lot of it can get very complex. So we know we're just kind of skimming the surface to give an idea of of what labor law is all about, but there's definitely more information. Feel free to check out Fine Law. We have a lot of good information about the various aspects of unionization and labor and employment law. Yeah, there's a reason why there's so many attorneys who specifically practice in this stuff, you know, (laughs) like this is all they do. And we'll link to some useful articles that go into more detail in the show notes. So we'll have to see what comes of the great resignation. I've also heard it called (laughs) the big quit or the great reshuffle. Ooh, I like that better. Yeah. (laughs) And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. Oh, sorry. Did you, did you want me to yuck it up or something? <laughs> <laughs>